Good morning. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. Cole Wissinger and I, and I'm Jeff Simpson, are in a particularly good mood this morning. And we can't exactly say why, but suffice it to say, we saw a movie last night that I thought was so good, you're going to want to cry. And we agreed for once. I agreed that it was great. It's unprecedented. We both left the theater just raving uh, in a good way about this movie. We won't tell you what it is for another couple of weeks. I know that's not fair. Mickey knows what it is, but she's sworn to secrecy as well. Isn't that right, Mickey that Randall? That is right. I will not tell. Okay. Thank you. Wow. I, I wouldn't take it we that far. We picked a good but... producer, Jeff. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> well, this is Screen Cleaning, and each and every Friday here on BYU Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern, uh, 11 a.m. Pacific. I think I finally yes. got it right. We do our darndest to bring the very best of entertainment to you. And we have quite a bit of good news today that we would like to share with you. First of all, I was tickled when I heard this. Have you ever been tickled, Cole? Not like literally, but... Tickled pink? Yes. The expression? Yeah. Sure. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to ask you in a minute what has tickled you pink. But Uh, uh, Keanu Reeves, the wonderful Keanu Reeves... Yes. ...is going to not make an appearance... But his voice will be heard in the upcoming Pixar film, Toy Story 4. Mm, Keanu is one of those really cool actors that has been in so many things and in so many diverse things that you can find out a lot about a person by what they think Keanu Reeves, Reeves is from. So when I say Keanu Reeves, what's the movie, Jeff? Keanu Reeves? Oh, the, Bill and Ted's. Of that's course. That's what I thought you'd say. Mickey, the what Matrix. Do you think? Right. And I'm a speed guy. So <laughs> that's your diverse Keanu Reeves for the day. Speed is a big, dumb, fun movie. With a great but action it's dumb fun. and uh, soundtrack. Emphasis on the dumb. Uh, so, Cole, what has tickled you pink? Is it anything Keanu Reeves related? I don't think so. Wow. Okay. Well, he's not going to share, I guess. So there is that to look forward to. This is super exciting. Speaking of people that... Uh, you know, are an 80s staple, Macaulay Culkin would have to be up there as well, don't you think? Absolutely. See, now when I say Macaulay Culkin, you say... Home Alone. Richie Rich. Richie Rich? <laughs> Richie Rich. Come on, That's a Cole. good one. <laughs> wow. Okay. So Home Alone, obviously. Or Home Alone 2. So I, I was talking to Cole about this yesterday. Macaulay Culkin is kind of one of those celebrities that is now more known for being a celebrity than for being a movie star. Because he doesn't do a ton of acting these days. He pops up every once in a while. But he's got this website called Bunny Ears. Not really sure what it's all about. But he, in an effort to drive traffic to this website, he's doing something that I think is pretty bold. Apparently, he put it out there on social media. I'm going to change my middle name legally to whatever you want it to be. So he started taking ideas, and he narrowed it down to five ideas, and the choices are Macaulay Shark Week Culkin, <laughs> Macaulay McRib is Back Culkin, we've got Macaulay Jeez. Stunt, or uh, Publicity Stunt Culkin. Because it is a publicity stunt. And then there's my personal favorite, Macaulay, Macaulay Culkin Culkin. <laughs> Yes. So, oh, and don't forget, there's Macaulay Kieran Culkin. 
submitted by oh, his, brother, his brother, Kieran Colton. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and he was on Jimmy Fallon, and apparently he said he would love for it to be Macaulay Culkin because when people stop him at the airport and ask him, hey, are you Macaulay Culkin? He'll say, well, Macaulay Culkin is my middle name. <laughs> and that is the choice that is uh, in the lead by far, actually. So if you would like to vote for Macaulay Culkin's new legal middle name, go to Bunny Ears. And vote for your choice. So Maybe far, we need one of these publicity stunts to drive yeah. listeners to screen cleaning. Jeff, would you risk your middle name for the show? You know, I'm I'm partial to my middle name. It was almost my first name, if you can believe it. Hmm. And if you ever listen to the Matt Townsend show, you know what my middle name is because he basically every day he named would introduce it. you yeah, as right. Jeffrey Liam Simpson. That's the only yeah. reason I know. And you remember? Wow, Cole. Okay, what's your middle name? I've got. Two of them. My first name's not even Cole, so it's I've got a complicated name that I never tell anyone. <laughs> Can I say what it is? No. Okay. Wow. It's a secret. So he's all right to say my middle name, but wow. Okay. I understand. <laughs> so speaking of this isn't quite eighties, but it almost is. And speaking of Christopher Columbus who directed Home Alone, everything is coming full circle today. Segways are on point. It's the 25th anniversary of Mrs. Doubtfire, directed oh. by Chris Columbus. I said Christopher Columbus at first, but it is Chris Columbus. And it's not the exact day that the film came out 25 years ago, but it is being celebrated because it came out 25 years ago this week. And that was a film that was very important to my childhood. Luckily, I didn't grow up in a, in a home where my parents were divorced or you know, arguing, but Robin Williams is just so fantastic in that film. And I think for a lot of people, it did some great things as far as, you know, this film showed me that life after divorce is possible, that I can still, you know, not have a damaged childhood or adulthood because of of what went down with my parents. What do you think of Mrs. Doubtfire? I love Mrs. Doubtfire. It has been a minute since I've watched since I've watched it, but I do. Uh, I would say I have fond memories. Okay, Cole. It's all right. It's Robin Williams' like seventh best movie. I mean, everything Robin mm. Williams churns out is fantastic, and so you can watch it for him. It's not like his seminal movie, but it's good. It's nice to. I like it when we find these goofy little anniversaries that we get to share with you on the show. Yeah, and it is a movie that was tailor-made for him. Actually based on a book. I don't know if you knew that. Based wow. on a young adult book. So go Good check trivia. it out. Based on uh, alias Madam Doubtfire. And the cast was reunited on the show. I mean, obviously not Robin Williams. On the Today Show. Really? They had like Dennis Quaid and <clears throat> really? some other people. Because I don't think Dennis Quaid was in that movie. Was he? Isn't he the dad? Who's the dad? Uh, the dad or the boyfriend? The boyfriend. Pierce Brosnan. Oh, it was Pierce Brosnan. 007. They, Dennis they look Quaid the same and Pierce, to me. Really? Yes. They're distinguished. Do you like you some uh, Pierce Brosnan or Dennis Quaid? Um, I can't say that I <laughs> They're do. They're older I distinguished. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. And, you know, some of the kid actors are no longer acting. Mm-hmm. But, but they uh, were there. Matthew Lawrence... Speaking of 80s and Joey Woe Lawrence um, in the movie, was Sally Field there? She might have been. I think, okay. it, I think it was Pierce Brosnan and the three kids. No Harvey Firestein? Didn't see him. 
He was the guy in Independence Day. Yeah. That is running after Jeff Goldblum in every scene. David. David. Oh, I've got to call my mother. It's a really good impression. Thank I you. did not see him in the pictures I looked at. Are you sure I that wasn't to... the little like desk clerk lady from Monsters Inc.? No. That you were just no. doing? No, no, no. Mickey knew what I was going for. Uh-huh. All right. So, Cole, I know I know this is something that you're tickled pink over. I know it. Even I... though you have not watched it. Yes. I, I'll reserve my reaction until I actually know what you're talking about. You did not even know about this until I told you that today they finally, finally released a trailer for a movie that you've been looking forward to for some time called Happy Death Day, the number two, and then the letter U. Happy Death Day to you. I'm a big fan of the original. It was a PG-13 horror, which you don't get enough of these days, and I'm excited for the sequel. Can I... I want to spoil something a little bit for you, but okay. it's it's something that you'll see in the trailer. Okay. When I saw Back to the Future Part Two, I thought they did one of the gutsiest things you could do in a sequel, and that was do the same thing as the original. Do the same thing <laughs> as the original, which most sequels do anyway. But I'm talking he. This is a movie about time travel, so you can go anywhere, anytime. What are we going to do for the sequel? Hmm. Let's go back to the same uh, scene that we did in the original. That was gutsy. But it worked. It was heavy. It worked. Whoa. Yeah. Well, this is heavy, Doc. Was Was that any better than Harvey Firestein? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, Happy Death Day to you. You would think, okay, what, Cole, if you had to guess, what are they going to do with Happy Death Day to you? What direction? This is a movie about a girl that it's, – it's basically if Groundhog Day were a horror film because she gets killed over and over and over and over again, she's got to try to figure out who's killing her. So, and it seemed like a one-time thing. It seemed right. like we had figured it out by so the end. what do you think the sequel's going to do? Hopefully the same thing. They do the same thing. <laughs> so she wakes up on the same morning that she was waking up on in the original oh, film. Oh, gosh. And it, the, you got to watch the trailer. And maybe you can help me make some sense of it. Because to me, it looked like maybe she wasn't the only one in danger. Now it was like her small circle of friends, like the killer was after all of them. You need to watch it and explain it to me. Okay. Because it, it was a head scratcher. But I'll do that. the trailer I saw for this movie okay. get, gives away the ending to the first one. That is true. And I was very upset about that because <gasps> I haven't this... seen it. I oh, have no. since. So don't watch it if you haven't seen the first one. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, so you saw the trailer before you before saw the movie. Before I saw the first movie. You must movie. have seen it when they aired the preview during another horror film mm-hmm. that we won't really talk about on the show. That's exactly what so, happened. <laughs> yeah, Jeff, whenever you say, I mean, the more excited I am for a movie, the more I normally stay away from its trailers. Okay. So I may I or may that. not watch this and then later explain it to you. Okay. So go see the film and then explain the film to me. Okay. Get back Sound to you good. in February, I think, is when it's coming Valentine's out. Day, right. <laughs> okay. So speaking of holidays, we've mentioned Halloween. We've mentioned Valentine's Day. Now Cole needs to uh, get some steam off his chest. Is that the, even the expression? No. Okay. But Thanksgiving just steam. <laughs> I, One of those. Thanksgiving's get another holiday. It just happened. And 52% of people in a recent survey say that Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving, is the right time to start 
listening to Christmas music. It's the next holiday. It makes sense, right? We've got a month ahead of us. And then I've got some other statistics. I want to know where you fall because you're a generation off of the other two people in this room. But millennials are normally more in favor of Christmas music in general. 36% of those aged 18 to 34 are fans of Christmas music. I'm just outside of that demo. 25% of baby boomers... I don't think I'm a baby boomer. Oh, okay. Yeah. But 31% How old do you think of I Gen am, Xers <laughs> are fans of Christmas music. The older you get, the less fond of Christmas music you are, according to this survey. We're also in another conundrum right now because it's still November. Right. But we're, we had a very early – we had the earliest calendarly possible Thanksgiving this year. So it's still November, but it's a week after Thanksgiving, but it's not December yet. Are you listening to Christmas music, Jeff? It's interesting because some radio stations are just putting all the other popular music on the shelf for a month. And like right after Thanksgiving, they started playing that Christmas music, which I am totally okay with. I listened to some Christmas music on the way into work today. Mickey, how about you? I'm also listening to Christmas music. Hey, because you're not a Grinch. Exactly. Or a Scrooge. Yes. Cole? You didn't answer this question. I love Christmas music. And so as We're soon, all agreed on this? This is amazing. As soon as you digest your turkey, you take a nap to kind of differentiate between your holidays, and then you wake up and it's Christmas time. And if you're a business owner or you know an executive of some kind that is selling Christmas stuff, you're preparing – I mean you've got your word out on Christmas in, your, in the stores like before Halloween, Halloween. time. Mm-hmm. So yeah – I'm sure they love them some Christmas music as well. Speaking of Christmas, Mickey, are you completely finished with your Christmas shopping? Almost. I still have a few more things to buy and then I'll be done. It's such a great feeling when it's done even before December is here. I bet. I've done it two years in a row. And, you know, there there are the occasional, you know, the, the presents that kind of trickle down at the last minute that you get. But I'm done. Cole, are you done with your Christmas shopping? I have bought a Christmas gift. Okay. <laughs> wow. I've got, another, yeah. I've got a whole month in front of me, guys. Well, this ought to excite you. And this is actually going to tie in very well with the rest of our show. If you're looking for a great Christmas gift. And I am. This little item will be released on Tuesday. And if you can't wait that long. It's available now digitally. But if you wait until Tuesday, December 4th, then you can buy for your loved ones or for yourself a little film called Mission Impossible Fallout. A film that Cole and I both saw, both loved. I was able to see it using my movie pass. He was not. And uh, It was the beginning of the end. I movie remember pass, it fondly. At, at some point, Movie Pass is going to be like Blockbuster, where you just mention it and people start laughing. <laughs> um, yeah. So this film is so exciting, so worth your money that whether it's eighteen, twenty, twenty-five dollars, you got to buy it when it comes out on Tuesday. And as I said, this is going to shape the rest of our show because Cole and I are going on a impossible or maybe it's a possible mission to rank the stunts in the Mission Impossible films as well as talk about some of our favorites and maybe even share some of the beef that we have with one or two of the Mission Impossible films. 
Part two is uh, a film that I'm going to repeatedly mention as a film that I have some beef with. We'll have some fun. But it's a series that we love, and uh, we thought that the release of it on DVD would be a good time to bring it up again. Real quick, before we go to break, Mickey Randall, favorite Mission Impossible film. Oh, I haven't even seen them all. I'm going to have to say this most recent one. What? Which ones have you not seen? (laughs) I maybe have seen the first one. I've definitely seen Ghost Protocol, and I did go to, is it Fallout? The most recent one? Yes. I did see that one. Well, good for you. You've seen some of the better ones. You've seen the good ones. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, when we return, as we said, Cole and I are going on an impossible mission here on Screen Cleaning. We'll be right back. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, recap all five Mission Impossible movies leading up to today's release of Mission Impossible Fallout. In under five minutes, start. All right, so the Mission Impossible series started with a bang as Tom Cruise's entire IMF, Impossible Missions Force, team is killed off during a mission to retrieve an important knock list. There will be more acronyms to come. Get ready. But this list was just a ploy because the IMF thinks that they have a double agent, and since Tom Cruise is the only one to survive, they assume it's him, so he is disavowed. But there is a list, and there is a mole, and they were going to sell the list. Tom Cruise finds who they were going to sell it to and offers to get them the list in exchange for identifying the mole. And this starts the theme of Tom Cruise stopping someone else from stealing something by stealing it himself. So, he recruits two other disavowed agents. They go to the CIA headquarters in Langley for the scene in the white room where Tom Cruise is suspended from the ceiling. They get the list, get on a high-speed train, find out who the mole is. Mission accomplished. And that leads us to Mission Impossible 2. Which contains the franchise's most daring mission yet. Make a movie for the sole purpose of sweeping the MTV Movie Awards. Just review this MTV Movie Awards bait checklist with me and you'll see what I mean. Uh, short hip title, in this case, MI2, check. Hard rock soundtrack, <laughs> soundtrack, check. Slow motion action scenes a la Jean-Claude Van Damme, check. Between the slow motion action and the slow motion pining and brooding, you start to feel like you're watching a two-hour music video. Hey, that's on the checklist, too. Either that or a perfume commercial. A forbidden love running toward a sun that will never rise. Oh, sorry, I got a little distracted there. Uh, Let's see, where were we? I guess we could talk about the plot. MI2 involves Ethan Hunt tracking down a biological weapon that's in the hands of a rogue IMF agent. Oh, who cares about the plot? Let's just go back to imagining this movie as a perfume commercial. Desert mists surround me. I am trapped in your embrace. J'ai tout le Which leads us to... Mission Impossible 3. This time, it's personal. And it's personal because Tom Cruise is retired from field work and a family man, but has to go up against one bad guy that wants to bring his family into it. This time, the thing Tom Cruise's team has to steal for the bad guy is called the rabbit's foot, and no one knows what it is or does, courtesy J.J. Abrams. Tom Cruise is then captured (laughs) by the IMF and disavowed again until he escapes. By this point, our bad guy, played by still the best villain to date to appear in the series, Philip Seymour Hoffman, has kidnapped Tom Cruise's fiancée, 
but his team successfully steals the rabbit foot in exchange for her. Masks are ripped off, Philip Seymour Hoffman dies, too soon, and everyone lives happily ever after until... Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, where Tom Cruise starts off in a Russian jail, but IMF breaks him out so they can break into the Kremlin and steal some documents. While they are trying to steal their stuff, someone else is stealing some other stuff, and they blow up the Kremlin. Tom Cruise runs away from a bomb that destroys a city block, but is blamed, along with the rest of the IMF and the entire American government, for the explosion. The IMF is disbanded and goes into, wait for it, Ghost Protocol. Mm. Turns out that the bad guy was stealing a nuclear device, but now he needs the codes to use it. Naturally, this means Tom Cruise and the others have to devise a scheme that involves scaling the tallest building in the world and deceiving the bad guys. Masks optional in this movie. They get the codes, though, and access to a satellite to launch them. Now the nuke is in the air, and Tom Cruise chases down the bad guy, fights him in a parking garage, and cancels the detonation. And the last mission, Mission Impossible 5, or Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, is the one where he hangs off the side of a plane. If you're losing track of which ones these are, he's hanging off the plane. Every time one of these movies comes out, my dad rolls his eyes and asks, uh, what's he hanging off this time? Thanks to the impressive but reckless stunt, Ethan, or Agent Ethan Hunt gets the entire IMF disbanded. Thanks a lot, Hunt. Crew spends the bulk of the film trying to prove the existence of an international terrorist group known as the Syndicate, led by Kip from Napoleon Dynamite. Seriously, it's Kip with blonde hair and a British accent. Big props to this film for giving us some legit high-octane action sequences and for introducing us to the awesome presence that is Rebecca Ferguson. If you're not familiar, she played Jenny Lind in The Greatest Snowman. I'm sorry, The Greatest Showman. Although that same year, she did make another film about a killer snowman called The Snowman. So there you have it. Cole, would you say mission accomplished? Mission accomplished. No, but Tom Cruise would. Oh, how long did that take us, Cole? That was less than five minutes. It was four minutes and 58 seconds. Oh, wow. That was as close as uh, this last movie. Oh, I'm not going to spoil anything now. But we do want to talk about Mission Impossible Fallout. Now, Cole, the reason why we talk, we've talked about on the program how watching other movies make us makes us like other movies even less. Mm-hmm. So that's a confusing statement. But let me give you an example of what I mean. Watching Mission Impossible 6 was an amazing experience. However, it kind of made me feel like Wish, Mission Impossible 5 was more of a watered-down film in that – you kind of see Mission Impossible 5 as just a setup or a placeholder to get you to Mission Impossible 6. If this was screen cleaning circa 2003 and we were getting ready for Mission Impossible 3, we wouldn't have felt it necessary to recap all the other ones because at the time they were just kind of doing their own thing. Right. But since Mission Impossible 4, we have this through line, this cinematic universe that they're creating where it does matter that the syndicate was there in 5 and that he has a wife, Michelle Monaghan, kind of from the third one. And all of these things are starting to crop up again. Even the villain in the first one, who once told uh, Tom Cruise this. So you are something of a paradox. Well, that depends. On what? Whether you like a paradox. So that's a cool scene for Mission Impossible Mm -hmm. 1. One of our bad guys in this one talks about her mother, who liked paradoxes and whose name was Max. 
which is clearly a nod to the first one. So Absolutely. we're so far from the second and the third movies that were just different directors doing different things. Now we are firmly in cinematic universe territory with the rest of 2018. But I do like a lot of those little nods to the other films. Like there's a there's a pretty clear nod to Mission Impossible 2. Uh, I don't want to say which one, but it involves rock climbing, let's just say. Yes. <laughs> um, so th- in this movie, the leader of the syndicate may have been captured, which we saw in part five. However, Ethan Hunt and IMF now have to worry about the apostles, who are other members of the syndicate that ha- that are carrying out their own terrorist for hire missions, including spreading diseases and swapping bombs and other chemical substances. Bad things. Right. Bad things, right? So they are trying to go after – oh, it's so funny. At one point in this movie, um, when somebody says, oh, IMF is disbanded or IMF is disavowed, my wife turns to me and says, "Uh, just like in every single other one of these movies. It's so true. Tom Cruise gets disavowed all the time. They're always trying to shut down the whole IMF. It's, inter- it's interesting. One note that a lot of reviewers have brought up when reviewing this movie, even though they gave it a positive review, was convoluted. Now, it's true. There are a lot of twists and turns in this movie. But one thing I will say about this movie that I can't really say about really, maybe maybe four, but not any of the others, is there are so many action sequences and a lot of them are hit or miss. Uh, in this movie... They all hit. They hit every single one of them, and they the suspense is sustained, and they draw you in. So even even when things get to a ridiculous level, which they do, I'm not going to say uh, what action sequence I'm talking about here, but by then they've got you, and they can do no wrong. Um, I do feel like, and we're going to be talking about beginnings and endings here in a second, but I do feel like. This is probably one of the weaker beginnings of the Mission Impossible films, maybe even the weakest. But everything that follows the beginning is just pure cinematic popcorn candy goodness. Wouldn't it you agree, It looks Cole? really good on a big theater. So I'm, I'm one that's a fan of watching movies on my phone. Rarely will I say that a movie deserves the big screen, but this is one of them. Unlike a lot of other action movies and even a couple action movies in this own franchise, they take their time and set up the action sequences so they all look good. Mm-hmm. You can you can see blocking and these like filmmaking 101 things coming out in their chore- choreographing fights and whatnot. Right. So you haven't seen the last of the leader of the syndicate who plays a very important role in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's just say currency is not used, but key people are used as currency. So basically these bombs are going to be made to wreak havoc on the world. That's another thing. Never have the stakes been as high as they are in this movie. Yes. It's always been, you know, a little bomb here, a little bomb there. This is like the entire world is affected. So it kind of goes along with with what you talked about, uh, about the franchise and how it – did you mention how it's kind of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe? The stakes are so much higher. So basically they're trying to intercept all of this plutonium to prevent it uh, from getting into the wrong hands. And that's where the leader of the syndicate comes into play. But we won't say much more about that. 
One thing I will say before we go to break, and Cole, you can add whatever you want as well. Um, Never before have I seen Tom Cruise work this hard. He put every drop of blood, sweat, and tears into this film, and it really shows. He is trying harder than he ever has, and it pays off. It looks great, and it is an exhilarating experience. I cannot wait to see it again. It was fantastic. You, you said it all. I also enjoyed this movie a lot. All right. Well, speaking of beginnings and endings, when we return, we're going to be sharing with you some of our favorites from the entire Mission Impossible franchise. That's up next on Screen Cleaning. I know you are going to come back with this music. It's the Mission Impossible theme. Hmm. I don't know what you're complaining about. Uh, well, if we're talking about Mission Mission Impossible 2, then there's plenty to complain about. Aww. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. We have been... Uh, Cole and I have had some impossible missions today. We tried to recap all five of the movies leading up to part six in less than five minutes, and we did it just under the wire. And now we are going to be talking about some of our favorites from the Mission Impossible franchise. So we're going to share our favorite pre-credits, our favorite mission, our favorite reveal or mask reveal, if you will, our favorite ending. And then instead of just ranking these Mission Impossible films, we're actually going to share our top six because there are six films. Uh, stunts or action sequences from the films. And they won't necessarily, uh, our list won't necessarily contain one from each of the six films, just to let you know. Some are more action-y than others. So, Cole, I want to hear, what is your favorite pre-credit scene? Well, jumping on the theme of Mission Impossible 2, I love the way this one starts. So we have, we had Mission Impossible 1, we were introduced to Tom Cruise, but now he's on vacation. He's not on a mission particularly. And what does he do for vacation? He free climbs in the mountains of Utah without a rope, just jumping from rock to rock, doing his Tom Cruise thing. Kind of how I imagine actual Tom Cruise spends his off time as well between these movies. (laughs) But then a helicopter comes swooping in, shoots a missile down right next to him the missile doesn't explode but it does have a fake top that reveals a pair of sunglasses that look as cool as sunglasses could look in 2000 he puts them on and gets the mission and then he takes them off and throws them and they explode into the title and the limp biscuit version of the mission impossible theme song that you just heard so now this would have to include the the scene on the plane because that also happens before the credits so here we are also introduced to tom cruise's rival the way we're actually introduced to tom cruise the actor is um his rival within the imf was impersonating him and then he takes Mm. off a mask revealing that he's going to be the bad guy of the movie and at this point i thought he was going to be the premier bad guy of this franchise Tom Cruise finally had a real rival, a real foil to go up against. It went downhill from there. But before the credits, (laughs) this guy seemed like he was truly the Moriarty, the the real worthy opponent of Tom Cruise. So my favorite pre-credit scene, it was a really tough decision because in my opinion, there are two great pre-credit scenes. I really, really wanted to choose the pre-credit scene 
from Mission Impossible 3. It is one of the most thrilling moments in any of the Mission Impossible movies, um, and it's the shortest. It involves this jolted awake Tom Cruise who is in the midst of a countdown, and he's been told he has an explosive device in his head that is going to go off if he does not tell Philip Seymour Hoffman where this rabbit's foot is. And a confused Tom Cruise is pleading for his life as well as, but especially for his wife's life. She is taped up and tied up in a chair. Philip Seymour Hoffman has a gun to her head. Ooh. And then the rest of the movie becomes a how we got there kind right. of thing. Great ending or great beginning. Mm-hmm. But I ultimately chose the beginning or the pre-credit scene for Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. It's the most fun uh, it has this great scene with Tom Cruise sitting in a Russian prison, and you see all these Russian guards sitting around, sleeping, playing cards, and all of a sudden, this jail cell door opens up, and this somewhat confused Russian inmate walks out, kind of takes a, a look around, and then slowly takes a stroll down the prison corridor, and the prison guard sees him and says, hey, what is What are you doing? And or what is this? And then you find out that Benji, who is now a field agent, Benji played by Simon, Simon Pig, is actually the one opening up all these doors. He opens up a slew of others and this prison riot begins and there's a prison break scene. Tom Cruise grabs another key inmate with him who has given him some key information that has has been very helpful, some intel. And all of this is going on while Dean Martin's Ain't That a Kick in the Head is playing. So much fun, and it has an explosive beginning as well. That's my favorite pre-credit scene. It's pretty good. All right, Cole, what is your favorite mission? So my favorite mission comes from Mission Impossible 5, Hmm. the Rogue Nation. Okay. And so... In this movie, when we talk about mission, we're talking about the main plot part. And so Tom Cruise's battle with the syndicate and how it starts off with the CIA shutting down the entire IMF and they're going to bring in Tom Cruise tomorrow. And then we get a thing that says six months later and Tom Cruise is still on the run, like not being brought in by the CIA because he is taking down the syndicate and finding more about them one by one. The whole that whole battle and the fact that it's now poured over into the sixth one is my favorite mission that they have to go on. Okay. I'm going to say what my favorite mission is, but I'm not going to elaborate because it may or may not come up later when we're talking about these films. My favorite mission is in Mission Impossible 4 when they are handing over nuclear codes to the bad guys. It, invo- it involves the tallest building in the world, and uh, as I said, this is going to come up later on my list. So I'm just going to say the my favorite mission is the codes exchange, the codes diamonds exchange at the Burj Khalifa, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. So now that leads us to our favorite mask reveal. Cole. I'm going to head back to Mission Impossible 2. Okay. Because... At this point, um, Tom Cruise, it's towards the end of the movie. He and his rival have had a lot of going back and forth. And then 
his rival thinks that he caught him, right? He sent some minions, some mooks out to bring him in, and they beat him up. And the last we saw, Tom Cruise had his face kind of beat in. And right. so he's brought in front of the bad guy, and he can't talk because his jaw's all messed up. And the bad guy shoots Ethan Hunt. He shoots Tom Cruise. He shoots our hero. Oh. And we think he's dead. But we rip off a mask, and we realize, no, Tom Cruise put a mask of himself on one of those mooks, duct taped his mouth shut, and then the very next scene is the Mission Impossible theme as Tom Cruise is running around with a mask of the mook that he takes off, and it's that bam, bam, the two mask reveals back to back there as we realize our hero is still on the run and still okay, that I think is the best. So really, Cole, the impossible mission for the audience watching Mission Impossible 2 is to keep track of how many backflips and mask reveals there are in this movie because there is an excessive amount of each. And hair flips. That's true. And twirls. And doves. And doves. (laughs) It's a great movie. So the best mask reveal of any of the Mission Impossible movies comes in Mission Impossible Fallout, the one that is out today. You'll see it. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about, and you will most likely agree with me. And I I do, too. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted something to talk about. <laughs> so, Cole, now what is your favorite ending? Okay. So this was hard for me, but my favorite ending is indicative of what the Mission Impossible movies became right around number four. I love the way that four ends because it gives us an actual conclusion to this mission. It's Tom Cruise and his team from that particular one sitting around a table, and he's inviting them to all come back later. He gets to meet up with Ving Rhames, who we hadn't seen the whole movie, and we finally get him in the movie, and he's my favorite part of all the movies. Um, And then we also see— We have the meats! Well— That's him, the Arby's guy, if you didn't know. He's also a good actor. Sure, yeah. And— Brings a lot to the table with Mission Impossible. But he also sees Michelle Monaghan, who we hadn't seen before in this movie. Um, we know that she's safe. And it kind of – it serves as very a post-credit scene feeling thing as we're setting up for the next one. The call he gets as he's walking off into the distance is talking about the mission he'll get in number five. This is where the franchise turns and it's the best ending at least. OK. I'm actually not a fan of that ending um... – but really, I had, a, I had a difficult time with this one, too, because I think the only ending that I really care for is the ending in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation because it's the shortest. It has a nice zing to it, and it really – it does what part four can't do. Part four takes like five, six, seven minutes to set up the next movie, whereas Mission Impossible Part Five takes about 10 seconds to set up the next movie because you realize, oh, Alec Baldwin, you are the new secretary of IMF. I love it. It's punchy, it's brief, and it gives us exactly what we need to do uh, exactly what we need to know in a fraction of the time. And it's a good callback. They're they're in that kind of subcommittee meeting that sure. that Jeremy Renner and Alec Baldwin were in before and it's good as well. Right. So now Cole The real part of this list that we want to share with you, the moment you've been waiting for, our top six favorite action sequences of all six Mission Impossible 
movies. Because let's be honest, we can talk about the plots and everything else as we have all we want, but the reason people watch these... Absolutely. ...are to watch Tom Cruise hanging off of something. So what's your number six, Cole? My sixth one is the most ambitious and the one where he's hanging off of the biggest thing, and it is the beginning of Mission Impossible 5 where he's hanging and dangling off of an airplane... Right. ...waiting for Simon Pegg to hack in and let him in. Tom Cruise said this is the most terrifying stunt that he's done in all of these movies. And he's done a lot. And I'm going to talk about some more of them that that he's talked about how he did them practically. But you don't love this one particularly, right? Um, I don't. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, I I do think it's amazing to look at and it is thrilling. But I'll, I'll mention in a minute here why I don't like it as much as you do. My number six I've got to take us back to the original because the thing that started it all was Tom Cruise dangling in the CIA headquarters at Langley to try to get a copy of this knock list, put it on one of two discs. And that's important. You find out later because one is a decoy disc Um, because it's just it's it's thrilling. I know it's a little dated, but you have. Jean Reno, who is holding him by this rope, who is he's this tough as nails guy who also happens to be afraid of rats for some reason. But the re- another reason this is great is because it's one of the earlier action, one of the only action sequences, minus all the Brad Bird action sequences, that introduces humor into the action sequences. The guy that should be in this room doing his job can't because they've roofied his, I don't want to say roofied his drink, but they put a little chemical in his drink that causes him to have to go to the bathroom back and forth. So that's where the humor comes in. I'm going to tack on to this one as well because it's also for Mission Impossible. I really like the scene in the fish tank restaurant where the head of uh, IMF or CIA of the CIA, I don't know who he is in the CIA, but he's basically confronting Ethan Hunt with the accusation of there's a mole in the IMF. And oddly enough, you were the only one that survived this botched mission at the beginning of the movie. So he never really comes out and say it. And Everything is is shown from like these low diagonal angles and it's very intense. Brian De Palma was the director. Right. And I love that scene. I love it. So that's my number six. From Mission Impossible 1. Yes. I am going to stay with Mission Impossible 5 for my next one and really? talk about the opera. I love that scene. Yeah. This that's is a good one. This is where Tom Cruise is breaking in and, and it's a lot of just normal action. He's going after one guy, realizes there's two other assassins trying to kill someone as well. He's trying to save the the Austrian chancellor and and it's all just normal action, but it's just shot really well and the music drops out and we get this just diegetic music of the opera that everyone else is hearing. And they choreographed the Explain fights. to us what diegetic means again, it's, please. So, yeah, diegetic music is where the audience is hearing the same music that the people within the universe of the movie yes. are hearing. Awesome. So it's not just Mission Impossible theme music that we hear. It's the opera that's going on in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's choreographed to the beats of the opera really well. And as it swells, the drama increases. And it's just really well done. I've never thought of the James Bond series whenever I've watched these movies, but this is the one and only scene where I felt like I was watching a James Bond movie. Very good scene. My number five involves the stealing of the rabbit's foot in Mission Impossible 3. You have another great shot of Tom Cruise jumping off a building and the camera following him. 
and he's swinging on this rope to land on another building. There's a little bit of humor in this scene as well because there are some baseballs that are being launched onto this building as a decoy. Uh, And there's some humor when he crashes into a building and has this moment with a janitor who's not quite sure what's happening. And then he he flies back out the building with his parachute. Um, A great thing about this movie is there's like a break in the action sequence where we take a little breather and we have a little moment with other members of the IMF team. And then you're jolted back into the action with the radio uh, feed of Ethan Hunt saying – I got the rabbits. Go, 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 go. And it's a it's a great reminder that in an action sequence, you don't have to see everything to be thrilled. Right. Right. I love that that moment was off camera and you don't see him getting the rabbit's foot. That's my number five pick. It's it, it's uh, action by omission. It's really, right. really cool. I'm going to talk about what you don't hear in my next mm. one. So I, I did love the way the music played into the opera. But when Tom Cruise and Simon Pegg are baking, breaking into the Kremlin in Mission Impossible 4, they do it in complete silence. Mm. And they, they put up this really cool looking projector screen in front of where they're hiding behind and walking back and forth so that the security guard thinks that he's just looking at the same hallway he's always looking at. But in reality, they're doing some stuff behind the scene. Cole, I'm not going to say any more than what you just said because that's my number four pick too, the Aww. Kremlin heist. I love that scene. It is it is clever. It is funny. And I've already said too much because I promised I wouldn't say any more. So what's your number three, Cole? My number three, so we're getting into the really intense ones, and I'm going to stay in number four. Oh, really? I think you like number four. For the Burj Khalifa slash Sandstorm running away scene. Ooh. So I know that you're going to talk about this later on. Yes. As far as him scaling the outside of the tallest building in the world. Yes. But what people forget is right after that, Tom Cruise outruns a sandstorm <laughs> as he runs into the crowd. There's another great mask reveal at the end of this scene as well. Yes. But it's it's that cool running from the sandstorm thing the, that I love this for. The only mask reveal in Mission Impossible 4. Correct. Because all of our IMF team are good guys. Their masks aren't working. <laughs> right. My number three comes from the latest Mission Impossible movie, and it is the halo jump from the airplane. If you're not familiar with the halo jump, it stands for high altitude, low opening. So special ops forces use it when they want to go undetected by the enemy so that you, you're opening your parachute at the last possible moment. And uh, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, it involves him, uh, Ethan Hunt, and uh, the Henry Cavill character. And it's a thrill to watch. Very exciting scene. So I'll stay in Mission Impossible 6 for my next pick as well. Okay. And it's the bathroom fight that we've seen in so many of yes. these trailers. Where With the arm reload. <laughs> Henry Cavill just looks so good. The sweat dripping off his back as he and Tom Cruise team up to fight this one guy that they were tracking. And they were going to just subtly... One of the themes of Mission Impossible 6 is the the difference between subtlety and just a blunt force. How Tom Cruise normally tries to be quiet and sneaky in these missions. And Henry Cavill's character is just burst in with muscles a blaring. And so that is also played off in this really well done fight scene. So Tom Cruise, get in, don't hurt people, don't kill people. Henry Cavill's like, I'll kill people if it, if it accomplishes what we need to. Uh, my number two is the interrogation scene in Mission Impossible 3, which takes place, as so many of these stunts do, 
on an airplane, involving the, the late and great Philip Seymour Hoffman, who keeps his cool considering he is tied up in an airplane, airplane being interrogated and later on in the scene dangled from that airplane as Tom Cruise is trying to get some information out of him and Ving Rhames is holding him back saying, this isn't you, Ethan, this isn't you. And he slips up. He says his name, Ethan, and that's so important. Yep, that's very important. Very good scene. And you're actually more scared of Philip Seymour Hoffman in this scene than you are of what Tom Cruise is doing to him. Because he keeps his cool so well. Right. And he tells tells Tom Cruise – Here's what's going to happen. Here's what I'm going to do. And then later on in the movie, that's exactly what happens. Oh, he that's, is such a good villain. That's my number two. All right. So my number one pick, the best action sequence within all the Mission Impossibles is going to come from the movie I've that takes up half of my list apparently. And it is Mission Impossible 5. And it is the underwater heist. Ah, yes. Because mm-hmm. Tom Cruise managed to hold his breath in real life for over six and a half minutes while shooting this scene practically. Awesome. It, we cannot say enough that as we as we gush about all of these great action sequences, we remind you that Tom Cruise is doing them all. There is no... I mean, I've sat in movie theaters and heard people say, I wonder how they're doing that. And someone else says, ah, special effects. If it's Mission Impossible, that is not the correct answer because they actually put Tom Cruise underwater, like took the mask off, waited for all the bubbles to go away, and he was holding his breath for six and a half minutes at a time, which is six times the amount that I can hold my breath, (laughs) to shoot this really well-done turbine underwater thingamajig. Right. So, Cole, you've already mentioned my number one, which is the climbing of the Burj Khalifa. What I wanted to talk about was another reason I enjoy this film so much and the scene specifically is I saw it in IMAX and I saw it on the biggest IMAX screen that you can see. There's a, there's a part where he's getting ready to scale the Burj Khalifa and he's peeking out the window to get a look at how just how high up he is. And as he's doing that, the camera follows his gaze and As that's happening, the IMAX screen expands to its full length or its full height. And I guess I didn't realize how terrified I was of heights until I saw this movie. My hands are getting sweaty just hearing you talk about it. Absolutely. This is by far, in my opinion, the best stunt action sequence seen in any of the Mission Impossible movies, not only because it plays on people's fears, but it sustains that Fear throughout the entire scene because things happen where his climbing of this building do not go smoothly and it just makes you even more terrified even though you know things are going to turn out all right in the end, right? But it's also uh, – it also has a very Brad Bird-esque thing that happens when one of his glove malfunctions. He tosses it away and then it appears later on. It's floating and like through the wind. Beep, beep, brr, 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 as it malfunctions again. And it reminded me of WALL-E, which is not a Brad Bird-directed film, but it reminded me of an animated sequence. And uh, it's the most thrilling, sweat-induced scene that you'll see in any of these films. I loved it. So there you have it, the top six or 12, I guess, action sequences in any of the Mission Impossible films. When we return, we're going to be doing a little panning for good. Get down with the victim. Oh, no, you need them. 
That music is from the trailer, of course, to Mission Impossible Fallout. It's a great trailer and a great film. Cole and I talked about it earlier here on Screen Cleaning. One that you should go see. I will say it is by far the most violent of any of these films. It's the darkest, and it has the highest stakes of any of these films. It's almost like the dark night of the Mission Impossible franchise, if you will. Not as dark... Um, not as epic and not That's as some high praise, not too. as good, but it's basically the dark night of the Mission Impossible franchise. Now, Cole and I would like to go on a couple of Mission Impossible related rants. And Cole, I'm going to let you do your one minute rant right now. So the Mission Impossible series, I have a lot of love for because I've loved it since it first started. I have grown up with this series. You say it's 22 years old. I'm a little bit older than that. But it's come a far way from what it used to be. The first three movies specifically were just giving different directors their take at who Ethan Hunt is and what kind of cool missions we could do and what we could show off. And they're all thematically very different. They cover different topics and you can see their vision in it. And as I mentioned before, with the end of number four, how it kind of becomes a post credit scene from four to six, now we have a second trilogy, it really does give you the feel that it's it's now living in the future. It's now a cinematic universe where each movie's tying into the next one. So it's not it's not something that I'm mad about because I view them just differently. But when I'm ranking my favorite movies, I feel like I have one spot for one, two, and three, because they're all really good just in different ways. But four, five, and six, I can really rank and say I like this one more than the other one. Interesting. And what what I find interesting before I get into my rant is that the the overall tone of all six of these films seems to be that they're making up making it up as they go along, you know, as it's changing directors' hands and all that, which is very in line with with uh, Ethan Hunt's character in these Mission Impossible movies, especially in the sixth one where I lost track of how many times he's like, oh, I'll figure it out. He's just kind of making things up on the fly. My little rant involves the stunts. You mentioned earlier the reason people go see these movies is the stunts. However, I think that at times they do themselves a disservice by just trying to come up with the best stunts and trying to one-up the, the one before it. Because the best stunts, in my opinion, of, of these entire franchise, of the entire franchise, are the ones that require more of the viewer. The ones that play on to your fears. They play on your... Uh, they, they want you to be filled with suspense. And so that's why in part five, when he's hanging off the airplane, it's cool, but it's at the very beginning of the film, so it's kind of a throwaway. There's no buildup to it. It doesn't last very long. Whereas in part four, where he's scaling the Bridge Khalifa... They're hinting at what he's having to do. Then he's peeking over the edge, so you see what he has to do. Then he's doing it. Things don't go quite right. Then he has to do something at the end that makes it even more difficult. Takes a breather back in the room. Simon Pegg comes in after having to do something different and not nearly as difficult as what Tom Cruise did. And he's panting and saying, whew, 
That was not easy, and it gives the chance <laughs> for the audience to laugh and take a breather. But the ones that I enjoy the most are the ones that require more of the audience and that are not just cheap throwaways. And they might have gone a little bit too far in the other direction now with Mission Impossible 6, where the climax and the big event stunt of this movie takes up the last whole half hour of the movie. It's true. It is a long <laughs> sequence. You'll feel it. So as we do with every other show, we want to give you our panning for good segment. There's good in them there hills. <laughs> <laughs> Cole, I don't want to throw you under the bus or throw you off guard by any means, but you are the Feel one free. that actually came up with the idea for this Panning for Good segment, so would you like to talk about what it is today? I love it when things come together, and we've been talking all episode about a movie based on a television show from the 1960s about spies that happens to star Henry Cavill. And so our Panning for Good is a movie that actually lost a lot of money when it came to theaters, but we both thought was pretty good, called The Man from Uncle, which is a movie based on a television show from the 1960s about spies that stars Henry Cavill. And it was directed by Guy Ritchie, who I have I've enjoyed everything that he's done that I've seen. It's it's very stylistic. There is a lot there are a lot of twists and they're very clever in the editing. So you get little pieces of the puzzle at a time and there's a lot of back and forth as far as the timeline is concerned. Great cast, Hugh Grant, Henry Cavill, mm -hmm. Army Hammer, mm -hmm. um, and uh, – oh, what's his name? Oh, we don't have to spend time thinking about that. But this is a film when I first saw it in preview mode without all the special effects and music in there. I loved it so much and I decided my wife is going to love this. She loves it even more than I do. And every time we have a movie night, she suggests this film. Go see it. The Man from Uncle. Maybe if enough people see it, they'll see, hey, maybe there's a demand for a sequel, which we sadly might not see. Cole and I accomplished a couple of impossible missions today here on the show. And you really ought to rent Mission Impossible Fallout, which comes out next week. Rent it. Buy it. Just see it. We'll talk to you next week on Screen Cleaning. Screen Cleaning.